How's it going, guys? I'm Sean. For those of you who don't know me, battling here with my laptop. Cool. Yo, it is such a such a privilege and an honor to be chatting. Um, I'm getting there with feeling comfortable about doing it. But uh, yeah, it is for any of you guys who feel like you want to grow a bit spiritually, maybe like it's been a while since you last read your Bible, just like go over to Yaku and just be like, dude, can I just preach on Sunday? Because that is the way you grow, guys. I mean, seriously, it is a blessing to prepare a word for the family, for the congregation. Um, I've got my fan club here, aka my connect group. Uh, I've even got even got Don and Anya who flew in from Mauritius just to see me preach. What what legends! I mean, even in winter, Mauritius and coming here in winter. Thank you, guys. But um, yeah, it is just such a, a privilege, guys, and I love doing it. And can I just say, it's not just because I'm saying this for the sake of my topic, but I love church, guys. I really, I love you guys. And, and I think church has played such a powerful role in my life, just the body and what that is and what that means and what that does for us. And that's the heart behind today. Awesome. So without further ado... And my laptop's uh, catching up. Um, so can I just quickly say a very quick uh, prayer for the, the word that I'm going to give. Lord, thank you so much just that you've given us this privilege of being able to know your heart through a book and feel your heart through the Spirit. We just pray that you would speak through me tonight. Amen. Awesome, guys. So Harvard University they conducted essentially the longest known, longest spanning study in existence. And it was called the Harvard Study of Adult Development. And the goal of this study was basically, what is the secret to happiness? Let's take a bunch of people and look at their lives over 80 years, ask them a bunch of questions and find out what is the secret. And surprisingly enough, it wasn't your career, it wasn't how much you earned, it wasn't how many trophies you have in the cabinet, how many certificates you have on the wall. The results came in and they were unanimous and the secret to not just a happier life but even a healthier life was deep, close, meaningful relationships. So if COVID taught us anything, it was this exact point. I mean, for most of us, what started out as a cool holiday, awesome, time away from the office and those overwhelming relatives of ours, we just get to chill at home and soon it turned into a bit of a nightmare. Basically living life with a substitute that just felt inauthentic, didn't it? Something about a Zoom call just doesn't work. eh? And so we're plagued with slow internet and forever being on mute. Jono, can't hear you, bro. I don't know if you can relate. But there's something about us that is just instinctively relational. And I don't think I need to convince you guys of that, but we were made for relationships. Now in Jesus' day, without your family or your community, you literally couldn't survive. But it's funny that despite the evidence, today we found ourselves becoming more and more isolated, where relationships are becoming less prioritized, not more. We seem to have risen as the prime goal for our lives, complete autonomy, where we are looking to build a life that is financially, 
emotionally, and even spiritually independent, self-sufficient. That's become our new goal. And the problem is that community is being sacrificed on the altar. It's being sacrificed for comfort, convenience, and control. The problem is we were not built to thrive this way, guys. We were hardwired for connection. We were designed this way, and that's why, despite our best efforts, we will never truly feel satisfied living this way. So in the beginning, and now I have to try and convince you of everything I've said, but let's have a look at the Bible and just just give it a go. In the beginning, there was God. So before there were blazing stars and swirling planets and roaring seas and skyscraping mountains, there was God. And we were made in his image. And the reason that's so important is for us to work out who we are, we need to find out the image from which we were made to mirror, to represent, to reflect. So we read in Genesis 1.26, it said the following, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals. So why is it that God used a plural? And so some would say, well, maybe he was talking about him and the angels. They were just like, guys, what should we do today? Our image, let's do it. Sweet. But Genesis 1.27, the very next verse, says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. So how do we explain this? Well, this can only be explained by understanding our interconnected Trinitarian God that we serve. He is three persons in one. He is distinct and yet at the same time one. So the best way I can try and get this idea across is uh, what I call the cube analogy. The cube, if anyone knows um, Transformers. But basically, imagine, so firstly we start in the beginning with the assumption that we can never understand the dimensions that God operates from, all right? So to put that into perspective, imagine we were two-dimensional beings. Yes, we stick men, okay? And a three-dimensional guy comes along and says, hey, check out this cube. It's a blue cube. I started off by saying, it's a red square. And I was like, these guys are jollers. That's not going to work. <clears throat> but so you have now, he's saying, here's a red square. Here, or here's a, here's a cube. And the guy says, no, 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 that's a blue square. And then he says, but watch. And he turns the cube. And we say, hey, that's a new shape. That's a yellow square. And he says, no, 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 it's the same shape, just different sides. And so that's kind of a rough analogy to God being three distinct people, images of God, people in and of themselves, and yet one entity, one God. Why is this so important? God himself was not alone in the beginning. God himself represents a living, loving working community. John 16 verse 13 says, Jesus says, all that belongs to the Father is mine. This is Jesus talking. That is why I said to the Spirit, the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. John 17 4 verse 5 says, 
I have brought you glory on earth, Jesus talking, by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in the presence, in your presence, with the glory I had with you before the world began. You see, guys, community is not a man-made concept. It's a God-given mandate. We were made to build community. So good. <clears throat> I actually, I forgot my chewing gum. Pierre told me to use chewing gum. I'll get dry. <clears throat> so Genesis 2 verse 18 says, Then the Lord said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a partner fit for him. So here's the first thing in the Bible that God points out and says, whoa, okay, everything I did is awesome, but this is not good. And that not good is that we should be alone. Now, okay, just a word out for the singletons in the audience. It doesn't mean go get married, but what came from Adam and Eve being together? Community, children, and eventually community. So what is not good is that we should do life alone. The problem, so we look around and we see relationships that are dysfunctional. We see the curse that has been played out in the lives around us. Divorce rates are at an all-time high, infidelity, partners that cheat, there's business colleagues that, that lie to us. All around us, we are overwhelmingly convinced that as much as relationships are a good thing, they're also extremely painful and broken. So to get into this, we look at Genesis 3 verse 1. So we all know the concept, Jesus, God had basically created a garden and singled out one tree, which was the forbidden tree, and basically gave us healthy boundaries, said you can have everything, but the one tree you can't eat from. So Genesis 3 verse 1 picks up from there. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Basically, Eve's like, yeah, that's pretty much what he said. To which he replied, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So before sin, something else suffered the first blow in the garden. And that thing was a relationship. The enemy knew the exact approach to attack. He attacked God's character. And what did he do by doing that? Suddenly he undermined the confidence we had in God. He attacked our trust that God is faithful, that God really is good that God really has my best interests at heart, and that I can trust him. And the minute he attacked that, that left us vulnerable. And what were we vulnerable to? Temptation. And so suddenly, he put something in front of us. Imagine you could be like God. And we fell for it. And what has happened ever since? Well, from broken relationships, we saw broken people. And this relentless spiral of sin has happened ever since. And so what came out of that fall was shame. 
For the first time, we had two people look at each other and recognize that they were naked, that they were uncovered, that they were vulnerable. And out of that, they covered themselves. And so back then, knitted fig leaves was the trend. So that was the first go-to. And they covered themselves because they recognized that you can see me. And suddenly, the only way that I can continue is by covering that which I think is vulnerable within me. And so shame entered the picture. And not just hiding from each other, they then hid from God. So after we cover ourselves, they we hide from God. And so God sought them out like the loving father he was. And when he did find them, he asked them, did you eat from the tree? And as the consequence of sin continues to just spiral, instead of owning up to the errors we'd done, it was a game of blame shifting. So we read Genesis 3.12. It says, the man said, no, 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 the woman whom you gave to me, Lord, you did this. She gave me the fruit and I ate. Talk about a 180-degree personality flip. It wasn't a chapter ago that he was singing over his bride, praising God for the gift that she was. And here he is, nah, it was all her, Lord. Like I was just standing there next to him, put fruit in my hand. And it's suddenly a game of hot potato because what does Eve do? Verse 12, we see that she says, then the, well, then the Lord went to the woman and said, what is this that you have done? And the woman just said, no, Lord, the serpent Aha, the serpent deceived me and I ate, so kind of wasn't my fault. And so here we have the king and queen of creation turning into squabbling children in a scene that looks more like a nursery playground than the Garden of Eden. And so what's the result? Well, we just see broken relationship after broken relationship to the point where many of us have given up on relationship altogether, recognizing that no matter how hard I try, no matter how much I give of myself, I end up broken and hurt. And maybe relationship isn't actually all it's cut out to be. Maybe I should just step back and just say, I'll do this one solo. The Old Testament is basically story after story telling this same story of how man breaks relationship, and in the process, breaks each other. And we wind up in a mess that only God can save. And God comes and saves us only for the same cycle to happen time and time again. And it works its way up to a climax where God recognizes that the brokenness in the world cannot be fixed until we fix what was broken to begin with. The only solution is to repair connection. But this costs something. And our sin had to be paid for. And so God took the ultimate price on our behalf and the intangible God became tangible. The immortal God became mortal and took on not just the sin of the world, but even that disconnection. He stepped into this world of disconnection where he had only known connection with God and suffered disconnection on our behalf. We see that in the, in the story of Jesus at the cross, 
the hardest part of that whole experience for him was that he had to go through 24 hours of complete disconnection from God. And he said, God, why have you forsaken me? He had only known absolute intimacy with the Father, and for our sake, he suffered disconnection. And he did this so that he could restore connection, that we could be reconciled with God. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 18 says, All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sin against them. And what was God's motivation behind all the pain that he took on? John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The power in this is that God understands the pattern of destruction and he addresses the starting block, which is, do we trust that God has our best intentions at heart? Do we trust that God is for us? We read in Romans, it says, if God is for us, then who can stand against us? The question is, do we believe that God is for us? Because that's actually what ended us in this whole mess. Do we believe that God is really faithful? Do we believe that God is really good? Do we believe that he's really powerful enough to intervene in my situation, whatever that is? You see, Jesus answered the deceiver's question, where the deceiver said, did God really say? Jesus said, yes, I did. Where, Jesus, where the deceiver says, did God really say that you're chosen, that you're special? Jesus says, yes, I did. Where the deceiver said, would God really forgive you? I mean, given what you've done, Jesus says, yes, I did. And so Jesus answered the heart cry of man. But beyond just almost nullifying any doubt, he also did something incredible, which was forgive every sin that had happened ever since we first doubted. And so it's not just a renewed mind where we now can trust God. It's also a forgiven spirit. God has forgiven us. And so what that has done is paved the way for us to step back into relationship with God. And this is fundamental because if we do not correct and bridge the gap between our separation from God, then we can never fix anything else that broke thereafter. It was first a disconnect from the Father that led to a disconnect between everyone else. What's the second thing that's so powerful about God's goodness? Is that God's goodness protects us from salvation. <laughs> Never mind. Temptation. <laughs> 
Salvation is the worst, guys. You don't, oh, never mind. God's goodness protects us from temptation. What was it that happened after we doubted God's goodness? That was the open door for the enemy to seed temptation, that you can become like God. And this is the biggest temptation that we fall in today. The need that we have to become self-sufficient, self-reliant, the need that we have to become fully independent, just me, myself, and I, that's all I have to worry about, and I'm sorted. What's hidden within that is the need to become our own gods, the need that we have to, to make the say, for us to decide what's right and wrong, for us to decide what's good and evil. And so once God solidifies that we can trust him, what comes from that is that we are protected. Once we trust him, we know that he is in control, that he is God. And for the first time, we can let go of being our own gods. And so this is the paradox of Christianity, really. It's that this gift is free. The gift of salvation is free. Jesus did this for free. And yet, it will cost us our own kingdoms. It will cost us our lives. And it is only when we say, your kingdom come, not my will be done, that we can truly embrace the gospel. And that's the paradox. It's the most free thing we can ever receive, and yet it costs the most. Because there's no room for two kings in God's kingdom. And so it's the best thing you can do and the hardest thing you can do. And I think the best analogy I have to explain that is I call it the baby analogy. We have a lot of dads here today, so they're the ones that I should be calling up and asking about this. But a child, a newborn child, is probably the best gift that anyone could receive. But ask any one of those dads that were up here today, and they'll tell you that it will change your life. It will alter everything you do from that day forward. And so the greatest gift, but so costly. But then ask them this question, was it worth it? And every one of them will tell you, absolutely. And so this restorative knock-on effect, where God first redeems our trust in him, proves that he's trustworthy, and then asks us to give our lives to him and step off our throne. And from that place, restoration can now flow through us and into the people around us. You see, we were called to be a community of believers, a community that strengthens each other, that builds each other, that grows each other. And we can only do that if we follow God's restorative plan. We are a living, breathing body. And so the body is meant to look after itself. If anyone knows maybe have stubbed their toe. It's the body's job to hear the toe as the, the toe's job to be vulnerable enough to send a message, to give a shout out and say, guys, I'm broken. <laughs> Literally and figuratively. I need you, kid. I need you, pal. And 
it's the body's responsibility to respond to that call. But in responding, the body has to stop what it's doing and tend to the toe. That toe needs to be dressed. It needs to be dressed or cleaned. It needs to be strapped. And in that process, maybe the body even needs to just take it easy so that the toe can heal. But in that way, so too has God designed our body, where we are called to have an ear for each other, to be vulnerable enough to share where we need healing, and for us to step in in each other's lives and facilitate that healing. Romans 12, verse 4 to 5 says, For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Another profound thing about that analogy is that you can only heal a broken member if it's connected. For as long as that member is disconnected, the body cannot do its job. Not only does it lose the function of that member, the member loses the benefit of the body. We were called to be connected. It starts with our connection to him and flows into this body. And so guys, this is my heart behind the message. A radical call to community. What did the church look like 2,000 years ago, guys? And does it look anything like that today? Do we read about a tame, polite Sunday service where everyone came and sang nice songs then went about their busy business? So we're going to read Acts 2. And I want you to brace yourself if you've never read this. But this is what the church looked like, guys. So Acts 2 says the following, verse 42 to 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to one another who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Does this look like our church? And this is vulnerable because it's corrective, it's exposing, it's raw. Is this too radical for us? You know, I mean, there is an argument to be made that this is the 21st century. It looks very different, and I get it. And maybe church every day is a lot. It is, I get it. But still, if we look so different to this that we cannot relate, then there's also a problem. 
So my question is, what would it take for this to be our church? What would it take? And I want you to just pay attention to your heart because God's will is never to condemn. So this message should not be condemning us, but he convicts and he stirs up and he encourages. And that's God's heart. He wants to stir up the body and say, there is so much more for you, my children. And so what is it that this church had that we need more of? And there's four main things that I think we need to focus and hone in on. And the first is proximity with Jesus. So these guys either knew Jesus themselves or were sitting next to a guy who knew Jesus and met Jesus. There is something to be said about the realness that they perceived Jesus the man. He wasn't an idea. He wasn't a concept. He wasn't just some religion that my family follows. This was a man that they knew. And they had experienced the love that this man had for them. And they knew that God was for them because Jesus had come. But also they had experienced the power of him resurrecting. It wasn't just a good God, he was a powerful God, and they knew it. So there was something to be said about their experience of reverence for him as Lord, but also intimacy in relationship. How much do we need to grow in our proximity to Jesus? The next one is submission and lordship. They say here, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. These guys were serious. In ancient Israel, becoming a Christian was a big deal. It meant guaranteed persecution, guaranteed rejection by your family, guaranteed hostility. When they devoted to Jesus, they devoted everything to Jesus. Their whole lives were submitted to his lordship. The next thing is prioritized connection. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. I know every day is a lot, but the question stands, if the only time that you see these people is on a Sunday evening, that's a problem, guys. We need to make the effort to be more than just a Sunday gathering. We're called to be more than a building. We're called to be a family. I'm blessed by Lino's testimony because she's experienced that. And that it's here. It is in this church, guys. But we need to make that the culture. We need to make that the experience of every one of us. Hebrews 10, verse 24 to 25 says, Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. And the last thing is radical love. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Who's willing to sell the house to give to anyone who needs in the church? Amen to you, brother. And I know because Pierre doesn't own a house. <laughs> <laughs> but 
guys, this is like, and I used to read this and be like, yo, Lord, this is another level of faith. I don't know if I can do that. Until I started dwelling on it and chatting with Yaku and we realized this wasn't an issue of faith, guys. This was an issue of love. So to put that into perspective, if I were to sell my car, take the proceeds, and drive around to every robot handing out $100 notes, there's something in me that is resistant to getting behind that. But if I knew Christina and Ruel, and I, and I knew them, they were family, and they went through a tragic, tragic circumstance, and they couldn't put food on the table for Alex and Benji, my heart would break for them and I would do everything I could to be a blessing and help them out. And if it went as far as selling my car but I didn't need a car, with enough love, I'll get there. (laughs) But that's the heart, guys. That's the heart. It's not a thing of faith. It's a thing of love. Are we cultivating that level of love in this family? God is asking for radical love, guys because he gave radical love for you. He's asking for an element of radical community and connection because that's how serious and radical he was about restoring his connection to you. And he's asking us for that same level of radical connection to be evident in the family that we are in. And this is evangelical even, guys. Coming into this presence, this family, is so foreign to the world that the world will step in and see that level of love and be like, this is not normal. Don't know what they're doing here, but there's a level of love that I've never experienced. Can we be that church, guys? And so, Raul's going to step up and, and just make me sound super spiritual now. Amen to that. But Guys, there's, there's areas of, of ministry that I feel the Holy Spirit wants us to, to just confront and just, and just minister our hearts into. And again, hear my heart, guys. It's, it's not to condemn. This is not the heart. The heart is to stir up the church, to say, guys, God has so much more for us. And He's calling that to us, but it takes a raw sense of honesty to be like, sure, God, have I been building up my own kingdom? Am I the God of my life? Am I Lord? Do I call the shots? So I want us all to close our eyes now, guys. And I want you guys just to think about Monday morning. What is that going to look like? I want you to think about the rest of the week. I want you to just ask yourself, what is my main concern throughout an average day? What am I most concerned about? What do I prioritize most on an average day? What about a weekend? What am I most concerned about on the weekend? Is it having a good time? Is it having a few cares, a lack of steak? Or is it God's kingdom? 
is my main goal every day to glorify God and honor Him. And then I want you to ask yourself this question. Have I chosen autonomy and independence over community and connection? And if the answer is yes, you don't have to say it aloud, but I want you to repent. I want you to say sorry. Sorry, Lord, that my will has taken preference over yours. Next question is, is God calling me back into connection with Him and His body? Do I need to repent from being a God unto myself? Am I scared to give God control? Do I trust God? Have I neglected proximity with Jesus? Have I neglected my devotion to Jesus? And does Jesus want to grow my capacity to love? was yes to at least some of this if not all of it but this is a space where we get to be vulnerable a space where we're naked before God nothing is hidden and he knows our hearts we get to just put it all on the table and be like God I feel like a wreck it's okay feel like I'm prioritizing the wrong things. That's okay. But then we get to extend our faith and say, God, will you do a work in me? And I want you to say that in your minds. God, will you do a work in me? God, here's my life. You are better than anything the world is selling me. You have my best interests at heart and I can trust you.
I can trust that you are worth more than a fancy job. You are worth more than what money can do. I'm more secure in you than in anything I can get from the world. Just take some time and just let the Holy Spirit speak to you. And I'm just so confident that He's going to just rock up. So I'm going to give you that space now. So while Sean was um, preaching and ministering, um, I felt the, the words just of, if, if your picture of church is an organized gathering, to do that daily is not very attractive. Um, some of you, like the band, they're here at three o'clock, the power team are here at three o'clock. If you have to do that every day, you'll, you'll quit. But if your picture of church is connection, a, devote, a devotion to one another, a radical love towards one another. That's a different picture. That's something different that we get to give ourselves to. And the other thing, and I'm standing first, if God has spoken to you tonight about any of the areas, I want us to respond in faith by standing. And what we're doing in this moment is just saying, I'm not going to hide away in shame. The first question God asked Adam and Eve was not, what have you done? But where are you? His question is always positional first. So like Sean said, it doesn't matter where you find yourself tonight. That's okay. If, if you're convicted tonight that you've been living just for yourself, that's okay. But can God take you from where you are to where He wants you to go? And, and I promise you, He won't move it from left to right in one moment. But can you submit to Him? Can you trust Him? And I love that word of um, intentional connection. What was it? And the third point. Thank you. Prioritized connection. I was testing who makes notes in church. Prioritized connection. And I'll tell you what I'm convicted about. That it's, for me, it's overwhelming to think, Your Lord, how do we live this? I don't have that much time in my schedule every week. But I can neglect prioritized connection. There's no way that I can have deep friendships with every single person in church. It's impossible. Neither can you. But do you have prioritized connection? People who know the deepest things about you so that you don't have to do life alone. So if that's you and you just want to respond, just stand with me.
Now, Lord Jesus, we just come and we acknowledge before you, Lord, that there's areas where we've drifted away from what the biblical pattern is for relationships and community and church beyond a building, beyond a Sunday, Lord. And we bring our, our hearts before you tonight, Lord, and we acknowledge that we don't necessarily know what to do next, but you guide us. And tonight we just choose as we stand in faith to give control over into your hands and to declare that you are a faithful, loving Father and you will lead us. Holy Spirit, would you come and work in areas of broken relationship and broken trust where our hearts, hearts have been hardened and we find it difficult to open up and to be vulnerable. Holy Spirit, would you come and do a work and would you add us into prioritized connection. Teach us to love deeply like you love. And then we desire, Lord, the evangelistic effect that Acts 2 speaks about, that because of this radical love within our midst, daily people were being added to the number of those who are saved. We don't want to live for ourselves, Lord. We want to live for your kingdom. We want to declare with our lives that you are worthy of all our praises, of everything we have, Lord. Like Paul says, in comparison to knowing you, we count everything else as dung, as nonsense, as worthless. And would you come and take the rightful place in our hearts again to be the Lord. Amen. Amen.